think my pupils just die. I think I, I think I may be in lust with this wine. <laughs> Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Anne, and I dressed up as Medusa for Halloween one year, so I love a good myth. And I'm Drea, and I also love a good myth. Can you guess what our topic is today, everyone? Dun, 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 dun. We are taking a trip to Greece with today's bottle, but before we fully get into that let's kick off with our reoccurring segment cheers and jeers and my dear what are you cheersing and jeersing this week i am cheersing we have a new takeout food hall in my neighborhood called sunnyside eats Ooh. um and they are very good they have several like um vegan storefronts or options eating options of like a few different varieties so there's like a southern soul food style there's like a couple of hamburger places there's a couple of arepas and empanadas like a couple of different things um and it's just really increased the number of vegan options in my neighborhood and they deliver so that's great um the piece that i don't really understand about it is at least as far as i can tell there's not actually anywhere to like sit there it's just like a group of restaurants all sharing kitchens and then delivering or giving you takeout so i don't i don't i don't understand that this sounds like a very like new york business model they're like get your food and get the fuck out <laughs> yeah i mean like that's not unusual for us so um but usually there's like a place where they're like here's a table like in theory you could sit here in theory, you could sit next to this dumpster and this pizza rat. <laughs> Go yeah. for it. But I don't know. It could also just be like a pandemic thing where they're like, that's not necessary right now. So, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't necessary right now. So I'll go with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and my jeers today is to my back and to getting old. So I was at the gym this morning and I had done a couple of like rounds of different exercises that I do and I was going to pick up um, a set of dumbbells to do the next thing and all of a sudden my lower back was like aha we don't like that um, and kind of flipped out it was very painful and I had to do like very gentle slow old lady walking for a minute and then some stretches and uh, then I've basically just been horizontal ever since then. Uh, so yeah, cheers, cheers to getting old. Well, I mean, it could be worse. You could be the one turning 40 this year. Speaking of which, what are you choosing? <laughs> Not that. You know, I really love a theme. I have a strong commitment to themes, as you may recall. So my cheers today is also in honor of our wine, but it is to Disney's classic retelling of the tale of Hercules. One of my absolute favorite 
Disney films ever, featuring one of my favorite villains, Hades, voiced by James Woods, and the delightful sidekicks, Pain and Panic, who are two of my favorites. I always had a fond spot in my heart for Megara, though I was always opposed to the dramatic retelling of her her story in that, but I, I did like her attitude and her song uh, and her line, I'm a damsel, I'm in distress, I can handle it. Have a nice so. day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's great. In fact, I, that may be how I spend the rest of my evening. We shall see. And my cheers this week uh, is if you are not living under a rock, and even if you are living under a rock, you've probably heard about what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, So cheers to the dictatorship in Russia led by Putin. Um, The guy is a psychopath. You know, I sincerely hope all of those people are okay that this conflict gets resolved soon and it's just so disheartening to see this at this time um in the state of the world today so god that got dark fast i'm sorry real yeah it's a real mess yeah it's a real mess i'm trying to stay away from cnn it is a bit of a challenge not gonna lie (laughs) but on that note um let's try and like resurrect this uh podcast (laughs) move into some shenanigans that seems like the most awkward transition i've ever made but again i'll add some music thank you that's what we're here for that's what we're here for awkward transitions so in honor of the greek wine that we are highlighting this episode we are doing a very special pairing segment where we are pairing wines with greek gods now I feel that, no, I don't feel anything, actually, but I, I was, do. yes, Anne has very strong feelings, and I was forced to make a very important disclaimer. Look, when when Andrea suggested this as the shenanigans, oh my God. I pushed my little glasses up my nose. Oh my said, God. <laughs> well, actually. She had a lot to say. She had a lot I to did. say. You know? I had some feelings. So tell the people the truth, Andrea. So as Anne ever so gently reminded me, the gods canonically only eat and drink ambrosia, right? Which is often depicted as this delectable food or drink that is thought to give longevity and immortality properties to whoever consumes it, um, which is why it is, in fact, the food of the gods. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about ambrosia, Anne? I only knew that it was the thing. I didn't know anything else. I just know enough to correct you, and then I let you correct yourself. Thank you. Thank you for leading me on this journey of self-discovery. Anyways, it was brought to the gods on Olympus by a bunch of fucking doves, um, and they served it during the Heavenly Feast. There you go. Uh, So that's the real tea on the gods and what they consume. But as you know, we, mostly me, are fools. Um, so we're going to create some mythology of our own and think about the wines, uh, and in particular the varietals that the gods would drink if they were just, you know, chilling with us at our local wine bar today. Um, so yeah, let's get into what we think they would drink. 
So the first god is obviously Zeus, the god of the skies, the heavens, king of Olympus. If you were to sit down with uh, with the head man himself, what would you pour? I feel like it needs to be something very classic, very stately, probably real expensive. But it's also, Zeus is, is fickle, right? And fun. <laughs> fickle and, I mean, not exactly the way I would describe him, but sure, sure. Uh, he can be, how about this? He can be challenging. So I would pair, I would serve Zeus a Pinot Noir. Because it is a classic grape, some of the most expensive, sought-after, desired wines in the world are Pinot Noirs, and it is notoriously, as we have discussed on this podcast, a very difficult grape to grow. Fair. I so I have a great one for this next god, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have it. Um, so. And you are at a seaside restaurant dining with Poseidon, the god of the sea. What wine do you order? So I suggested if I was if I was gonna serve this with Poseidon, I thought a gamay would be a good choice to bring out the the salty flavors of those sea fish. And I'm curious to know now what you thought. Oh, one hundred percent of Shirello. Oh, super well, fine. <laughs> super dry, um, good citrus, a little bit of that salty finish. It is the wine I like to pair with oysters. So there we go. Excellent. Do you have anything for Athena, the goddess of wisdom? So for Athena, the goddess of wisdom. I feel like it would need to be an old world grape. I would select a, I think I'm probably going to butcher this, which is terrible because we're having the Greek episode, uh, Siomarva. It's a, it's a Greek, um, varietal, one of the oldest in the world, and it has big, bold flavors. And if you are not used to, you know, tasting this particular red, um, it, it kind of is a type of wine that, you know, makes your tongue slap your brain a little bit. So it really does make you think about the wine itself and, and its composition. Um, another one that I think would be great for Athena is a Tempranillo, too. Um, often a very uh, rigorous, interesting, mildly confusing flavor palette, especially if you get into the age Tempranillos. I have one for you, my vegan friend. Like how I did that? Like how when Hades is, talks to Cyclops, he's like, hello, my optic friend. Hello, my vegan friend. Uh, Demeter, goddess of the harvest. I would... Choose a bottle for Demeter because she's the goddess of the harvest. I would go back to my roots. You'll see what I did there. And I would choose a bottle of wine that my mother would be proud of because Demeter is famously a mother. And I would choose something with a chicken on it 
It would be all about the label. Just Demeter is just gonna have some chicken wine, I guess. All right, well, we're gonna we're gonna have a chicken a chicken for the harvest. What do you have for uh, your favorite god of all time, Hades? I do love Mia Hades. It's got to be something full-bodied, inky, dark, mysterious, brooding a bit. Um, I would, and something that's got a little bit of spice to it um, and could could go real wrong real fast. So uh, with Hades, I'm going to pair a Nebbiolo. What is that? A nebbiolo is a Italian um, varietal. It's hi- high tannins, high acid, tends to bit, be a bit um, heavier on the ABV, and it's got those really dark red fruits and dried fruits um, in terms of its palate. You're also going to find flavors like leather and um, tobacco and wood smoke on the back end of that. Um, they tend to also be really earthy too. When you think about stuff like, um, clay and a little bit of like balsamic almost to it. Uh, when they talk about like the baking spices that you get with this particular varietal, uh, you see things like anise more and licorice. So, um, it's just like a crazy, crazy varietal. And I've a lot of in San Diego, a lot of places do Nebbiolos. So especially if you get into like Temecula, where they're doing a lot of um, Italian varietals and they can go, like I said, real bad, real fast. But if you do a Nebbiolo right, with just like the perfect touch, they are phenomenal. So, you know, they're a touchy wine like Hades It's touchy. Okay, who, who uh, do you, did you have Apollo? Did you have something for Apollo? I do have one for Apollo. I think you're going to like this. Okay. So Apollo is the god of the sun, music, and poetry. And once again, I sort of went outside the realm of a particular uh, varietal. But did you know that there is a winery called Sergo Alighieri in Italy and it is actually um, run by the direct descendants of Dante Alighieri, author of uh, The Divine Comedy, which when you think about poetry, music, all of those things, like does anything fit better? Uh, so I would, I would bring him one of those and we'd, we'd sip it up and talk about, talk about some poetry. Just talk about all the realms of hell. That is so fucking nerdy, and I love it. How about, this is a complicated one, Hephaestus, the god of fire. How, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with another sp- sparkling varietal. I'm going to get, I'm going to do a Lambrusco. So a Lambrusco is a red sparkling um, you don't, you know, Ooh. yeah, so it's, it's, it can be kind of funky, but really big fruit, both red fruit and black fruit, um, it tends to have a little bit of a sweetness on the finish, a little bit like a Merlot, you know, that like marshmallow landing I talk about, uh, but it's just such an unexpected wine. 
Um, and there's something, you know, it would have to be a dry one, a Seiko for sure. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's different, it's complex, and it's really unexpected. Okay, and, uh, oh, Anne, how about Aphrodite, the goddess of love? I was hoping you'd ask me this one. Um, I have, I think, the perfect wine for Aphrodite. Uh, we drank this wine together in San Diego um, on one of our, I think it was one of our early wine dates. Uh, and you used this wine to introduce me to orange wines. But there's a wine called Love Amour, and it's got the most adorable little label. It's got a little cartoon drawing of uh, Red Riding Hood, and she is kissing the wolf on this label, and I just feel like it is the perfect taste and flavor for Aphrodite. It's flirtatious, it's fun, uh, and then obviously the name is just ideal. I love it. Um, I think we might be down to our last god unless I have missed one. And this is, I think, a perfect one to end on and a perfect one for you. Dionysus. The god of wine. Uh, honestly, Dionysus is like a straight-up wino. So we're going to drink all of it. And then we're going to party on the Grecian fields. <laughs> With ambrosia, to keep it canonical. Yeah. There we go. Of course. <laughs> All right, so should we talk about this bottle? Let's talk about this bottle. So, Drea, we've already announced it's a Greek wine. What is in our glass? We are bringing the funk this episode uh, in a very historic way. So what we're drinking today is the Ritinitis Nobilis from Gaia. And it's a non-vintage wine, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, the price point is about $20, and it has an ABV of 12.5%. And what what is this <laughs> wine made of? Where does this wine come from? So this is a Greek wine, um, and it's doing the research for this episode was fascinating. It, there's all sorts of cool stuff about this wine uh, that I want to share. So first, you know, if we look at our glass, what and tell our listeners what color the wine is Ooh, we are shaking it up this is this is a white wine and in my glass it is like almost water clear i mean it is a very very pale wine it's definitely a super pale yellow almost has like that those greenish pear undertones to it i would say too um but what's really interesting then about this grape is it is a like rose colored grape that is used to make this extremely light wine. And um, the varietal is called Roditis. And these grapes tend to yield very crisp, dry wines. Um, that are pretty citrus heavy, but also have some nice floral notes like honeysuckle and jasmine. It's also um, a grape that tends to give you a lot for your value. 
Um, and it's been compared to something like a Pinot Grigio in that way. So think like same sort of structure, viscosity, stuff like that. Now, I want to go back for a minute to this color thing, because you said it was like a rose rosé colored grape, but I thought that rosé wine was about the process and leaving the skins on. So is this something different? It is. So you are absolutely right that rosés become rosé through skin contact, right? But typically, rosés are made from red grapes. So like if you have a um, Cabernet Sauvignon rosé or a Pinot Noir rosé, those are red grapes that are then yielding that color through contact with the skin um, while they're undergoing that maceration fermentation process. What's interesting about this one is these grapes are more of a pink, very light purple in color, yet they yield a white wine. So they are getting no contact with the skins, right? That's the first thing. Um, but when we think about white varietals like Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, some of those classic ones, these are all white grapes. Like their, their skins are white, their flesh is white. Um, so the fact that we're getting this very light colored wine from a rosy pink grape, I find fascinating. It's like magic. Now I really want to see the grape. Girl, Google it. <laughs> I mean, I will. So while you're Googling to your heart's content and checking that out, the other interesting thing to note about Rhoditis is it's the most planted white grape variety in Greece. And it's typically used as a based wine for hundreds, possibly thousands of quote-unquote modest everyday whites or what we all often think about as like table wines. So if you're, you know, if you're at a restaurant in Greece and you're getting a picture uh, or a carafe of the house white, chances are that that white has a good chunk of roditis in it. Um, it's probably blended with other things, but this is one of the grapes that if you've had white wine in Greece, you've probably have had this at some point. Um, and that's because this variety has often been characterized as a very humble grape, which is super interesting to me because it can yield very distinct, um, very excellent high-end wines. But most of the Roditis wines that you find um, tend to be really high values for your money. And, you know, tend to to make a great impact and be really interesting, especially if you're drinking on a budget. Well, and like you said at the beginning, this this bottle runs for about $20. So this definitely is within our sort of usual price range for this podcast. Absolutely. When you think about $20 for and now, granted, it's not your two buck chuck, right? But for an imported wine with an interesting varietal, like that's a really good solid price like that's a good investment bottle um to you know impress your friends have for a nice dinner have with a great you know cheese or charcuterie board um it's definitely not going to break your bank but i think you're going to get a lot of mileage out of it in terms of both flavor and conversation so i know you love a little bit about the growing season and the soil do. what do you I have i really do so um, the other thing about Roditis that's really important is that 
it is very well suited to a Mediterranean climate. This is a grape that tends to ripen later in the season. So don't think August, think October. Um, and it really, you know, is able to like kind of linger on that vine and in those soils um, to develop as much flavor as possible. These wines tend to be really terroir driven. And I would say that that's not just something that's uh, very characteristic of Ruditus, but of Greek wines in general. Uh, the Greeks have one of the oldest wine growing traditions in the world. And, you know, I've I've been wine tasting in Greece. It is an experience unlike any other because there are places that, you know, you're drinking wines from vines that are, you know, here in the United States, we talk about like 80-year-old vines and 50-year-old vines. Like these are vines that are hundreds of years old, especially in the islands, which didn't get attacked by the phylloxera, right? So uh, mainland Greece, it's a little bit different, but when you get out to the islands, you know, certainly you're dealing with those very old vines. The other thing with a lot of these vines in the Mediterranean is they're so terroir driven because they're dry farmed, um, which means that they're not pumping any additional irrigation into that soil. And what that does is, in addition to being more, you know, climate friendly, it forces the roots of the vines to grow deeper down into further soil beds in search of water. So what that does is, is exposes the, the um, roots and the vines themselves to all those little minerals that those roots are traveling down into. So um, you get the advantage of all of that in these bottles. And the Mediterranean tends to be a pretty temperate climate. You don't see a huge temperature shift. They, they tend to have really well-drained sandy soils. And all of this gives these wines really nice body, good complexity, uh, and strong fruit, fruit flavors that are closer to melons, apples, pears, things like that. So less citrus-leaning, and then and more kind of richer fruit leaning. So this particular bottle is from the Peloponnese region, um, which is really historically significant in the, the wine world. And you are going to love this shit because I know you love a good backstory. But thousands of years ago, Homer referred to this region as a quote, place full of vines. And then during the Venetian rule of the Middle Ages, when sweet um, Malvasia wines began to be traded all over Europe, especially to big centers like London and Paris. This region really got a lot of traction. So Peloponnese was one of the first kind of international distribution centers for wines, if we want to think about it in that way. Um, it's also an incredibly productive area of Greece. It's like we think of the central coast in California. It has terroir that varies in landscape. There are hills, there are subregions, there are microclimates. And so you really get the, the variety of climate and soil that allow you to make very diverse wines from this region. You know I love a Homer reference. I, th I thought you, I mean, we had a Dante one, so it's only right we have a Homer one here. Mm-hmm. So who are the people making this wine? They have a pretty great name as well, which 
I'm glad you included pronunciation because turns out I've been saying this wrong my entire life. <laughs> I would have pronounced it Gaia too, but yep. um, according to the winemaker, it is pronounced Yaya, and um, which reminds me of an Outcast song, but that's fine. Never mind. Um, and this particular winery was started in 1994 by two very good friends. And they ended up getting a small vineyard on the island of Santorini. This wine in particular is not coming from Santorini. So Yea has multiple um, growing vineyards. Their flagship one is in Santorini. And then, of course, the one where this particular wine comes from. What I love about their mission is what I love about so many of the winemakers that we have featured on this podcast where their goal is really to capture the best of Greece's indigenous grapes. And, you know, I think that producers and growers who are really reinvesting in the ancestral heritage, winemaking heritage of the places that they're from are just so important. You know, I think that from the 1970s and into the early 2000s, the market was so flooded by Rhone and Bordeaux varietals that it was really the end-all be-all. And to see so many winemakers emerging in the last 20, 30 years really dedicated to ancestral farming, preservation, and bringing these wines back into these larger conversations is so important and is really what keeps me so interested in tasting and traveling and learning about special bottles like this. And so they have really focused on merging traditional viticultural practices and modern production methods so that they can capture kind of the essence of these varietals in in a way that is sustainable and that will continue to yield grapes of, you know, these ancestral vines as we move into the future. Um, And so they're actually really well known in Greece um, itself. And they are kind of, you know, Yaya is kind of leading the charge of today's modern generation of internationally trained winemakers in Greece. So um, both of the winemakers, these two friends, have worked elsewhere. One is uh, an ologist. And so, you know, they do bring kind of a lot of science and experimentation to their winemaking process, but they're also very invested in working with things like wild yeast um, and alternative materials for wine aging. So, So not just all, for example, you know, French or Hungarian oak, right? But really focusing on um, some more historic styles like amphoras and concrete eggs and things like that. Well, and that makes total sense, you know, thinking about, like you said earlier, the amount of history that they have to work with. I mean, why wouldn't you take advantage of the centuries millennia of tradition that you have to build from if you're if you're doing this in a place like uh, the Greek islands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or on the mainland itself, too. And I think that this bottle, um, this written I this is a really exceptional example of that spirit of experimentation and that commitment to tradition. So the first thing to note about this particular bottle is that 
it is what we call an NV or non-vintage. So non-vintage wines are wines that are blended from multiple vintages to achieve a consistent style and taste in their wines. Um, this often makes certain wines more accessible, or it also becomes a way to leverage vineyard production, especially if you're pulling off of older vines that have smaller yields. In the case of this bottle, though, the non-vintage issue is actually more related to the process of how this wine is made, which is fascinating. This may be like the coolest wine production method we've featured on the podcast. So it takes a lot to get you. I mean, you've covered a lot of wine production here and it's always fun when you find something new and like to get to hear you talk about something new and exciting that like you haven't come across before. This is so wild and when we were looking for bottles and we knew we wanted to feature a greek wine but we weren't sure which one and i read the description of this bottle and how it's produced and i said damn that one that's the one we're doing it's gonna be rad um and this bottle is really like a bottle of greek history so for years greek winemakers actually used pine resin to seal their wine barrels. So in other words, you know, instead of like a cork stopper or something, they use the pine resin as a sealant to avoid the oxidation process so that the wine could age, right? What ended up happening, though, is that white and rosé wines ended up taking on distinctive flavors of pine due to that resin. Um, and this is a kind of flavor profile and winemaking process that has continued to live on today in the Greek tradition. It's done a little bit differently um, now. So Yea, for example, produces their version of this, you know, pine resin style wine by seeping tea bags of pine resin in the must of the wine which serves to create these subtle aromas of mint and eucalyptus um, and makes a wine that is particularly well-suited to pairing with saltier foods. This varietal, and this wine in particular, I would say would go great with like Greek appetizers. So think, you know, olives, hummus, feta, um, with honey and, and bread, um, olive oils. Dolmades with oh, the stuffed grape yes. leaves is what is coming to mind for me. I just want one. Yeah, I, I love Greek food. It's one of my favorite cuisines in the world. And I think that this wine, you know, speaks to kind of that style of food and that level of herbaceousness that those foods have and that, like, kick of saltiness that I love about them. So... Um, yeah, I just think that that's wild, <laughs> the way that they create this wine. So when you think about it in that way in the process, the non-vintage thing becomes, frankly, like a non-issue. Because what you're really doing is create, you know, using this wine. And it's not like, you know, it's garbage. It's still high-quality wine from high-quality grapes farmed in a sustainable way. But you're really using it as a vehicle 
to then add these additional layers through this winemaking process. So similar to, you know, things that we've seen sort of in the Prosecco method or a uh, 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 carbonic wine, right, where you're you're doing that extra added step. Um, but this one happens to be a step that adds sort of these herbal layers to the wines. So are we ready to... Uh... Are we ready to get into it officially? Oh man, I am so ready. I also want to eat like all the things and I already told my husband that we are ordering Greek food for dinner, so. Yeah, I feel like the pairing section for this wine is going to be real easy. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about the color already, you know, that very, very pale, just a hint of green, a hint of yellow. Um, What else do you see when you kind of look at the wine in your glass? So it is super clear. I mean, I think that that's one of the things to note too. It has a high level of clarity. And you mentioned it almost being like water, like it is that legit translucent. Um, There is no sediment, there's nothing floating around in there. You know, so that would tell me that it is probably a filtered wine, um, but it doesn't matter because it's managed to absorb all those delicious flavor notes already. Yeah. Should we give it a, a whiff? Let's give it a whiff. I will tell you, I am not sure of what is going on here. I love it so much. The The scent is very strong. Like you, you get a strong flavor and it's not like an alcohol flavor, but it's sort of this like... It's like nothing I have smelled on this podcast before. This, and I can't believe I'm the one who's saying this because you're the one who likes camping and not me, but I do like nature. This wine smells like taking an outdoor shower in a forest. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but that is, these are not the kinds of forests that I have been in. I mean, it's not a piney flavor. I'm definitely getting more like herbal, more eucalyptus um, on the yeah. nose. And so when I was in college, there we had a huge eucalyptus, I mean, it's still there. There's a huge eucalyptus grove on campus. And the side of campus that I lived on, I often had to walk through or by the grove to get to my first class of the day. And in Northern California, in the late fall, when it's foggy and kind of dewy, and you're walking to an early class, passing the grove, this is the smell that, you know, my now almost 40-year-old brain kind of imagines. It's such a clean herbal scent or for those of you who practice self-care in a way that's way more responsible than I do those um cool like herb bundles that you can buy at farmers markets or like bougie shit places that you can put in your shower like you tie them to the shower head and they're supposed to like you know calm you down or whatever maybe I should try those maybe I should throw them less shade and actually fucking try them (laughs) I mean, maybe that's a pairing for maybe this wine. Maybe that is a pairing like, for this wine. <laughs> Silence. Get yourself a to-go cup. showers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're not having wine in the shower, are you even a wino? 
I'm just saying. So the memory that sort of comes up for me, like you just described a really lovely memory. Um, I used to run. I don't really do that anymore. But in the neighborhood where we lived, there were a f- there was a fair number of people who like used rosemary as like a decorative bush. And so I'd run past and I'd get this like incredible whiff of rosemary. Um, and that was just so fragrant. And that's kind of what this this wine is reminding me of. Yeah, you know, because at the very end of the nose, there's a little bit of sweetness almost. Like, and that at first I thought it was mint, but maybe it's also mint and rosemary. Oh, I just, I kind of want to shower in this wine. Like, that's how good it smells to me. All right, so I've now that I've officially made things weird, um, might as well keep going. Let's talk about our well. Oh, we need to taste it. We need to taste. I was gonna like let's pair things because I'm so excited. Of course, we have to taste it. All right, as though we haven't. As though we haven't been drinking solidly for the last half hour. All right, let's let's give it a, a swish and swirl. I find this wine shocking. <laughs> Demon. It is Help. so different. Shocking than anything good? else we have had. Like shocking, like a nip slip. Shocking, like you won the lottery. Shocking. Shocking, like what did I just put it in my mouth? Oh. Like I don't think we've used this phrase recently, but like you have that phrase of like this is gonna make your tongue slap your brain a little bit. Like that's what's happening for me. I love this for you. I love this journey that we're on together right now. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just, you know, it's funky. It's weird. It is super weird, but I am fucking into it, like hardcore into it. I have not been this excited by a wine in quite some time. Like I, this, this wine will wake up your taste buds like no other. It is bright it is refreshing. It is deeply herbal. It's got some really powerful citrus notes. But I also get that, um, like, underripe pear and honeydew on the finish. Like, it's a t- it, the finish lingers, too. So even after, you know, that sip, I can still taste that sweetness in my mouth. Well, and I think some of what I'm getting and some of what might be so weird to me is it almost like there's a part of this, there's a part of this sip that is like licking a salt lick. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like having a little bit of salt. It's like a giant block of salt on my tongue. But in a really pleasing way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not mad about it. Um, Yeah, it is like, this is a wild ride. I mean, when we did that, uh, the the acid one, the, um, Oh, the Riesling. No, I think it was a Chardonnay electric acid test Chardonnay, right. From Germany. That's yeah, right. The yeah. unoaked shard. Um, that was crazy. Like that took my mouth on a ride, but this is like, this is trans dimensional. Well, and again, not to say that it's not refreshing because it is, it is like really refreshing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I may have just found my like, summer wine 
I mean, you're going to have to get more of it. You said you bought the last bottle in Del Mar. No, that was for our next next episode. This oh, I can't okay. find this shit here. I'm going to have to... Or- oh, I'm going to have to send you some more. Oh, I'm just going to order a case from Aster and call it a day. <laughs> good call. Good call. It's that good. I, although I do have... I do have a secret weapon place that I may be able to get it from, so... But this is... Oh, I'm in love. I think I'm in love. So what are you... I mean, it, I feel like it goes without saying, but what are you, what are you going to eat I with mean, this? I mean, a what are you shit pairing? ton of Greek food. Like a shit, like an yeah. obscene amount. Okay, so when I, the first time I was in Athens, I w- really wanted to go to this restaurant that happened to be at the top of the placa, at the very top of those um, iconic steps right? And the placa that have like the little cafes and you sit out on the steps. So if you go all the way to the top of that, there's a restaurant that I had read was supposed to be absolutely amazing. I learned very quickly in Greece that the relationship with time there is non-existent. In Spain, we have a very loose relationship with time. In Greece, like it doesn't exist. Everything is five minutes and two hours later, you're like, where the fuck am I? And so, you know, trekked up to the top of this massive staircase hill thing. And it was by far one of the most memorable and delicious and affordable meals I have ever had while traveling. And the first thing that they brought out was this half loaf of grilled bread that had been slathered in Greek olive oil, which has that delightful, vibrant greenish undertone to it, and garlic. And it was the best thing I have ever put in my mouth. It was delicious. And I want to just recreate that moment with this bottle of wine. Yeah, I mean, I... It is exactly as as we said before we started tasting it. I just want all of the Greek appetizers all of the mm-hmm. time. So I want, you know, Kalamata olives. I want that saltiness. Um, BioLife now makes a, a pretty good vegan feta cheese. I want that, that saltiness of the cheese. I want um, a salad, I guess. But mostly... I just want, like, I want pita, I want hummus, I want all of the things. Grilled eggplant, mm-hmm. I think, would be delicious yep. here. Um, yeah, just, like, Greek decadence is the name of the game. One thing I like to to make sometimes is a whipped feta, where you mm-hmm. almost make it creamy like a, like a ricotta. Um, and eat, I like to drizzle it with a little bit of honey, dump some pistachios on there and serve it with grilled bread. And it is maybe one of the world's most perfect dishes. Baba ganoush. Baba, Baba ganoush, ganoush. Is what I was trying there to we go. with the, the grilled eggplant. Yep. That's what I want here. Yeah, something nice and smoky that's going to pick up on mm-hmm. that salt and herbality. Yep. Yeah, just like have a, have a Mediterranean food orgy. Okay. What are we... What's the situation here? Obviously, we're in Greece. (laughs) We have already been transported. Yeah, we're there. We're having a great time. It's magical. We're just going to go get some custom sandals made and then head off to the islands. Yeah, we're clearly on vacation together in Greece. (laughs) 
that's what's happening. You know, I just want to point out that when we did we planned this episode, you were like, this cannot turn into like a Mamma Mia theme. But I do want to say we have just described Mamma Mia. I just want to go find my three dads and drink this wine with you them. You have a dad. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so we're living it up in on, in Greece. We're living it up in Greece, yep. Eating all the things. Um, what are we reading before we fall asleep in the sun? Well, I know what I'm reading. What are you reading? <laughs> so I am reading Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles and Circe. I thought those were two of the best books that I read last year. They were absolutely amazing. It goes back to the Greek myths. Um, and just like Song of Achilles is a book that I sobbed over the ending. It was so good. Yeah, those are actually really um, lovely books. I enjoyed both of them thoroughly. I think she's a brilliant writer. Yeah, so those those are great, but this episode would not be complete if I did not put my plug in for Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I mean, no surprise, <laughs> no surprise there. there. Keep it light, keep it fun, you're on vacation. <laughs> what are we listening to? And I can already tell where this is going. I mean, I have two answers. Mm-hmm. One, I do just want to listen to, like, traditional Greek, like, folk music. Like, just give it to me. Just give me the full Greek experience. But then, obviously, since we're on our island eating a ton of Greek food, and I have already mentioned Mamma Mia. I knew it was coming. I would like an ABBA soundtrack. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Please and thank you. I mean, I can't deny you. I feel like, in some ways, this is a wine that defies words. Like, it's that wild. Um, so I would definitely choose some sort of instrumental, probably guitar. That feels like it goes with this chill vibe that I'm imagining myself in. So yeah, but definitely something instrumental. And who are we going to in- invite to our Greek adventure with us? Well, I feel like it has to be Meryl Streep, right? Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine. With I mean, that. I'm going to invite the dads too. I want Colin Firth to hang out with me. I can't remember the other two right Pierce now. Bronson. Are you going to get mad if I, like, make out with one of the dads? No. Right. Done. Fine. They're daddies. They're daddies. <laughs> My favorite type. Uh, yeah, I have no objections to this plan. I will, I will join the ABBA party for that purpose. Actually, I'm going to be honest. I think the whole cast would be great. Because in addition to Meryl Streep, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, Stellan Skarsgård. You also have Christine Baranski and Julie Walters, who played, uh, who could regale us with stories of Harry Potter there. Is while the, we're there. Doesn't Cher also show up in this movie? Yeah, Cher comes too. Oh, Perfect. I would listen to Cher oh, fuck with this yeah. wine. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't usually know what's going on there either. So this is great. I'm on board. Yeah. Fully on board. Yeah. You know, I feel like we've just planned our, like, next vacation, so we should probably get on this. So, we just said, um, we picked this wine up at our, my favorite New York place, Astor Wines, but where would you recommend people look to see if they can get a bottle of this? So, this one was a bit, uh, trickier to source. Um, I highly recommend, though, using the website WineSearcher, WineSearcher.com. You can type in any wine and it'll give you a full list of places across 
um, the world that sell it by the bottle. Keep in mind, sometimes you have to purchase a case. Like some of these places have minimum orders. Um, sometimes though, you may find one, you know, close to your neighborhood or a place that's willing to ship within your state. So it is a great tool uh, to source some of the wines that, you know, you you either read about or you you hear about here on the podcast. Um, so definitely check them out. And before we get into our kind of closing and talking about our next bottle, uh, we also have a very special podcast announcement. <laughs> so some of you know this, but we have been doing this podcast now for over a year. Hooray us. Cheers. Great job. Um, and I would just like to say it has been so fun, um, sometimes challenging, but really fun to make this with you. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm so glad we did it. When you proposed this idea, you know, I really felt like I had a chance to kind of fulfill like a lifelong goal, or at least like a goal I've had as long as podcasts have existed. So basically like all of my adult life. And it's just been really wonderful uh, to get to do this with you and to work with you on this. Um, and I feel like everyone can predict that there is a butt coming. So here it is. But it is time for me as your your co-host and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word here. Uh, co-adventurer is what I'll go with. Soulmate. Uh, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, I'm ready to try out new adventures, explore new creative endeavors. So with warm feelings in my heart, this is going to be my penultimate episode of Two Girls and a Grape. So I am going to hand the reins over to Andrea. She has a great new co-host that we will both introduce next episode. I'll still be here for uh, one more episode. Uh, but this is the announcement that I am stepping back from the podcast, but I know that you will take it forward to new heights. Well, and I will miss you. Um, it has been so much fun to couple our weekly uh, Smith sessions with this new adventure. I've learned so much from you during this time. And this is always your home. So you are always welcome back on the podcast. And the only reason I am not sobbing uncontrollably is because I know that there are lots of wonderful bottles of wine in our future and more time that we get to spend together to get up to some real shenanigans. So uh, next episode, we will be, as Anne said, introducing our new co-host and shaking stuff up a bit. And we have a very special bottle um, to send Anne off. We are going to be sipping on the Avignon Cava Brut Reserva from 2018. We felt like since Cava is one of those wines that brought us together and has been so important in different parts of our friendship that we would feature another Cava this time around. So I don't think we're going to get quite the same telenovela-worthy story that we did with Freshenette, but um, this is definitely a more exceptional bottle and has a little bit of age on it. So it'll be a good time. And if you want to purchase that bottle in advance, um, if you're on the East Coast, Aster Wines is your place. If you're on the West Coast, I bought 
the last bottle in San Diego, but it is widely available cross country. If you check Wine Searcher, there are listings from California to Washington to Texas to Michigan to New York to Florida. Um, so it is readily available. Pop into your local wine shop and ask them if they can snag you a bottle. And, you know, while you're online looking for your next bottle of wine, why don't you head on over to iTunes or Spotify and leave us a rating and review if you have been enjoying this podcast, if you liked this episode, if you're ready to have your tongue slap your brain around a little bit, you know, the, the best way to tell us about that is with a five-star review and a comment on iTunes or Spotify. And uh, where can people follow us, Drea? So you can follow us on Instagram at two girls and a great pod. That's T W O girls and a great pod. Um, we also have a email two girls and a great pod again at gmail.com. And so, um, yeah, we're going to be shaking stuff up here on two girls and a grape. Lots of new fun things to come and we'll see you next episode. So to Anne, to you, my wine soulmate, I love you more than I love this wine we're drinking today. Salud. I mean, that is a big <laughs> compliment. Yes, you're welcome. Salud, my dear. Salud. <laughs>